Human history can be viewed as the attempt by Satan to bring men back to a new Babylon after he failed in Genesis chapter 11, to create a global political order of mankind where every empire answers to one being with this one world religion serving as the glue in this political empire that defies creator God. And is the world ever set for that now? People ever look to the stars, any God but the God. Throughout scripture, the authors frequently refer to a city known as Babylon. While Babylon was a real city, it's also used in scripture to represent the world's system that stands opposed to God. Here on Wisdom for the Heart, Stephen Davey is in a series called Armageddon and the Fall of Babylon. A battle is coming in which Babylon and what it represents will be destroyed. We began this lesson last time, but weren't able to finish it. So Stephen's going to do just a little bit of review and then bring you the conclusion to this message called A Tale of Two Cities. The next time Babylon appears with all of its might is under the rule of a man named Nebuchadnezzar. Remember him? In 2 Kings 24 and 25, this conquering king comes in with three different military campaigns and levels Jerusalem to the ground. He takes the finest of the citizens, brings them back to be raised in Babylon, and one of those young men was Daniel. It will be in the kingdom of Babylon that Daniel will prophesy of the ultimate victory of Jerusalem. And Daniel will prophesy from within the city walls of Babylon that Babylon will be defeated by the Medo-Persians, and they were. The Persians will be defeated by Greece, and they were. And Greece will be defeated by Rome, and they were. And then he will also prophesy that there is coming then a final world empire, these ten toes of this image, ten king coalition that we've been studying in Revelation, and ruled by the Antichrist in this revived Roman Empire. So in other words, what what I'm saying is this. The conflict that began in Genesis will reach its climax in Revelation. Human history can be viewed as the attempt by Satan to bring men back to a new Babylon after he failed in Genesis chapter 11, to create a global political order of mankind where every empire answers to one being, once again in effect, with this one world religion serving as the glue in this political empire that defies creator God. And is the world ever set for that now? Do people ever look to the universe more than ever to the stars? Any God but the God. It's prepped and ready for the final kingdom. In between Genesis and Revelation, it frankly seems like Satan is winning. As Nimrod appeared on the scene in the first book of the Bible, and the Antichrist appears in the last book of the Bible, just like Nimrod and Nebuchadnezzar, the Antichrist builds a statue in his honor. Just like Nimrod and Nebuchadnezzar of old Babylon, the king of new Babylon, 
will demand that everybody worship before the image of his own greatness and the glory of his own empire. And, and like both of them, all three will ultimately be defeated in battle. In fact, the last time a conflict occurs between Babylon and Jerusalem, it's called the Battle of Armageddon, and Jerusalem wins, in case you were wondering. Now, in our past studies, we've unpacked the truth of that battle as the forces of the kings who marched against God were defeated. And the blood, you remember, that flowed from the defeated armies ran like a river through the valley of Jezreel. The bowls of God's judgment are finally emptied, and Christ, in his glory, comes to sit upon the throne of Jerusalem. All right, enough of an introduction. Let's go to Revelation chapter 17, quickly, okay? Revelation chapter 17, it's all wrapping up here. John has been watching the bulls poured out. He's been stupefied, no doubt, at all the sights and sounds of God's judgment. Christ is coming back. Just prior to that, something interesting happens. It's as if an angel pulls John aside and says, hey, let me show you some things. Look at verse one. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and spoke with me saying, come here. I want to show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Now what's happening here? As it's already happened several times in the book of Revelation. You'll see events racing across the monitor as you're watching it. It's happening so quickly. What just happened? And then it's like somebody pushes a button and everything stops. And then it's rewound and started over again in slow motion. That's what happens in chapters 17 and 18. Chapter 17 and 18 are a slow motion, in fact, a rewind, where we're shown the details of Babylon, new Babylon. Chapter 17 will show us the religious system of New Babylon and its ultimate demise. Chapter 18 will show us the city, the capital of this empire, New Babylon, and its ultimate destruction. By the way, before we dive in, there is more said about Babylon in the book of Revelation than any other topic or event. There are 404 verses in the book of Revelation We're covering 10 a year. Out of the 404, 44 of them have to do with Babylon, which means if you're a mathematician, and I had to use my calculator because I'm not, that's 11%. 11% of the book of Revelation deals with Babylon. In fact, there is more attention given to Babylon than the new heaven. And wouldn't you like more information about the new heaven? I would. Why so much information on Babylon as opposed to the new heaven? There's no answer provided. I can only speculate, but it came to my mind that perhaps it's because we can't understand much about heaven. But we'd better understand much about Babylon. Because we're in a battle in our own generation against the kingdoms of this world with their philosophies and their religions and their false worship. We're in that battle today. Now very quickly... I want to give you six characteristics of the system of religious Babylon, system of spiritual false worship. The first thing I want you to notice is her influence, her being this religious system referred to as the harlot. Verse 1 tells us she sits on many waters, right there at the end of verse 1. Now look across at verse 15 where we're told exactly what that meant. 
And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. In other words, there will be the growth of this religious system which will affect the world. Now go back to verse 1. I will show you, the latter part, the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters that is affecting nations and tongues and peoples. With whom, verse 2, the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. Now just imagine for a moment the world without any true Christians in it. And I mean true, genuine Christian. Not everybody who calls themselves a Christian. We live in a city filled with people who would say, I'm a Christian. I mean genuine Christians who've come to faith and under the mastery of this one we call our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, just imagine the world without any true Christians. The rapture's taken place, and the Christians are gone. Sin will be unleashed throughout the world like never before because the restraining influences of salt and light are gone. Now, we don't know how much time elapses between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation, which begins with the peace treaty of the Antichrist with Israel. But in that lapse of time, there's no gospel. After the, uh, the tribulation begins, the witnesses will traverse planet Earth, 144,000 of them declaring the gospel, and many will come to faith in Christ. But you have this period of time where the church is gone, no gospel, no salt, no light. Imagine that kind of world. Sin will just come on court. It will go unleashed around the world. And religion, what will happen to it? It will flourish like never before. In fact, the references to Babylon's religious system is pictured with sexually freighted words because God has always considered idolatry and false religion to be spiritual adultery. That is, you're giving your love to somebody else where it truly belongs with, with God. And the world, we're told, is going to be drunk with both sin and idolatry. Now think about it. How many religious systems of worship do you think will carry on after the rapture without missing a beat? The world is a religious place. And the rapture won't slow them down at all. In fact, I think they'll only increase. There will be Protestant churches who will carry on as if nothing happened. There's staff still on planet Earth, as well as most of the church members. Catholic churches will have their mass as usual. The Mormon church won't miss a service. Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, Judaism will all continue uninterrupted. Why? The only missing element is the salt of the earth. The genuine believer in Christ who will have been raptured. And the only religious people who, by the way, are, are caring about the Bible. All of a sudden, the people are gone within the religious systems of the world who care about God's word. And, and the only people left are people that really never cared. So the people that are gone are the ones who, in our generation, are, are, are going to denominational meetings saying, we can't do that. The Bible says this. The gospel means that. They're gone. And the missing people are the missionaries, both vocational and, for, and informal, who are testifying. They're the ones saying, hey, wait a second. There aren't many paths to God. There's only one. Jesus Christ is the only way there. They're gone. Now all you have is religion without any gospel. And it will coalesce 
rapidly, with great joy. Those people are gone, but we're so glad. Now let's get on with what we want to do. When the World Council of Churches, which is just one of many expressions of this desire to coalesce apart from the true revelation of God's Word, when the World Council of Churches was organized in Amsterdam in 1948, one of its aims, it said, was to, and I quote, bring all branches of Christianity, and I use that term loosely, to bring all branches of Christianity together, including Protestant, Roman Catholic, and Eastern Orthodox churches under one organization. Well, their dreams will come true. The current Pope today who desires unity with Islam and Judaism, his wish will come true. The religions of our world will unite with great joy into one massive, confused tower of Babel. One author Evangelical author said he expects if we are indeed moving more and more toward this era, expects to see more and more mergers between denominations and more emphasis on ecumenism. Ecumenism is a word that simply refers to the effort to merge all the world's religions into one giant world religion. So what do you have to do to do that? Get rid of doctrine. Get rid of any theology and basically say, well, we'll all unite around this, whatever that may be. Well, here it comes. All it takes is for the bride of Christ to disappear and the world will, in a very brief period of time, without the salt and light of the gospel, run together. Say, finally, we are one at last. I want you to notice, secondly, her partnerships. Look at verse 3. He carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, Full of blasphemous names. This woman, of course, is the harlot, this false religious system. Sitting on this beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. Now, we've already learned that the empire of the Antichrist will be the seventh world empire, the revived Roman Empire. It'll be made up of a coalition of ten kings. These are the ten toes of Daniel's vision, that image, the last world empire. We're not going to take time because we already have to go through these descriptive phrases in chapter 17 regarding the Antichrist's kingdom. However, there is one key verse that we haven't addressed in our studies that I want to show you. It's verse 9. Look at verse 9 of chapter 17. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now, this is a reference to seven hills, and this particular reference to seven hills causes some to believe that this woman, this system of false religion, is the Roman Catholic Church, since Rome sits on what? Seven hills. Well, not only is that viewpoint, in my mind, wrong, it's far too restricted for all of the world to come under the banner of Roman Catholicism in this one world church. What makes me even more convinced that that isn't true is that the Bible goes on to say even more about this. In fact, there's not a comma or a period at the end of that phrase I read, but a comma. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, comma. He continues on by saying, and they, these seven hills, are what? Seven Kings. You could render that seven kingdoms. In other words, these seven hills are seven kings or kingdoms. Well, who are they? John gives us the answer. Five have fallen, one is, and the other is not yet come. 
And you say, thanks, John, that's so helpful. I know exactly now what you mean. Well, you understand it if you understand this metaphor is, is one of hills being empires. Five have come and gone. Who are they? Well, study world history. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece have come and gone. John says, one of those empires is, present tense. When was John writing? During the reign of what? The Roman Empire. And he says, one has yet to come. There's one beyond Rome. We know it to be this final world empire, the revival of the Roman Empire, this ten toes of the image Daniel prophesied of. But guess what that means? Now here we are in the 21st century. You know what this means? There is only one more empire to come. We have seen six come and go. There's only one left. The revived Roman Empire ruled by the Antichrist. We're closer than ever before, aren't we? We're living in that moment in human history when the next world empire ruled by a man will be the last to be ruled by a man. The one following that is the one ruled by the God-man, our King, Jesus Christ. Now the fact that this harlot is seen riding on the beast is John's way of saying that she's partnering with it, the Antichrist. In fact, there are some that believe that there's an implication here that she's actually controlling the beast. And I believe that's true. And the Antichrist isn't going to put up with it for very long, as we'll see in a moment. Thirdly, I want you to notice her wealth. Notice her wealth. The wealth of this unified religion. Verse 4. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. All this is to say she's just extremely wealthy. Purple and scarlet clothing, by the way, were the most expensive clothing you could wear in John's day. Millions of certain small Sea snails that emitted a purple dye would have to be harvested in the Mediterranean region to make enough dye to to dye cloth purple. In John's day, one ounce of purple dye was worth more than one pound of gold. So all that to say, this religion that captures the attention of the world will be immensely elaborate. The buildings will be stunning. It will be incredibly wealthy. And I find it interesting, if you look back at that verse, that this woman is decked out in things that heaven will have in abundance, right? Gold, precious stones, pearls. She's got got a few of them, maybe a string of pearls, maybe some gold rings on her fingers, some precious stones, uh, perhaps. Uh, She's she's decked out in, in that which, by the way, when compared to heaven will make her look like she just has a few trinkets. I remember playing with my youngest daughter, Charity, when she was a little girl, most often time uh, in the evening, that little game, Pretty Pretty Princess. How many of you have played that game? Look at the hands everywhere. You probably don't want to admit you did. I'm doing it publicly. But that's where you pushed a little board piece ahead, and if you got to a certain place, you'd be able to pull out of this box a big plastic earring, a clip-on earring. 
it looked dazzling. He'd go a little further along, you get another earring, and he put that one on, and then you get the necklace, and then you even get a little crown. And if you win, and I, I won oftentimes, <laughs> I, was, I was completely decked out. My wife took pictures of me completely decked out in this jewelry, which is a scary picture now that I look at it, and you'll never see it ever, ever, I hope. But you know, to a little kid, that, that stuff, that plastic, that, that was dazzling. Wow. And she'd look at me and say, pretty, pretty princess. <laughs> and if she won, I'd say to her, pretty, pretty princess. Well, you know, to them, it's just amazing. Listen, heaven is going to make the jewelry of this false religion look like plastic junk, trinkets, when we see the glory of heaven. Notice, fourthly, her perversion. Verse 5, and on her forehead a name was written, a mystery. Now unfolded, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. In other words, it all started with Mother Babylon. It all began with her, the source of organized rebellion and creature worship and universe adoration and astral devotion and demon-inspired idolatry. And on and on it goes back to Babylon. She is the mother of spiritual prostitution, worship that ought to belong to God, but is given to another. And it says here that her name is on her forehead. It's interesting to me to learn in John's day that the common prostitute in the first century, and it was a legal flourishing trade, wore her name on a scarf on her head or on a colorful headband. This was how she advertised what profession she was in. The other way she advertised was by braiding her hair and exposing her her back. That's why Paul would come along later and tell the women in the New Testament church, don't braid your hair. In other words, don't look like a prostitute. The, The principle is timeless, though braiding hair certainly is all right in this culture. Her name is on her forehead. It's how she advertised. This was her effort to be remembered so that she could be called upon again. By name. So the spiritual harlot here seeks to be remembered and desired. But it won't work after all. Let me quickly show you, fifth, her agenda. Verse six And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. You boil it all down, and basically you got this she hates God and she hates the people of God. That's why when the world talks about tolerance, It can speak of tolerance with every religion, but it cannot be tolerant with us as Christians. They hate us. There's something about us because of whom we represent. Isn't it true? Well, by the time of the the tribulation here, the woman is actually portrayed as drunk. She's drunk. She She is totally inebriated. She's saturated with the blood of the believer. Horrific expression. And it will reach horrific stages as we've already seen in our study of the tribulation days where she will put to death millions of believers. Finally, number six, I want you to notice her ultimate destruction. Verse 16. Go to verse 16. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot, this false religion, and will make her desolate and naked, will eat her flesh and will burn her up. With fire. Put simply, the Ten Kingdom Federation and the Antichrist will reach a point where they will have no need of her anymore. She served her purpose 
Antichrist now unveils his image, desecrates the holy place. The one world church will be replaced. Many believe around the latter part of the tribulation period where the Antichrist will claim to be God and set himself up to be worshipped alone. He will not allow anybody to worship one more star. He won't stand for anybody worshipping the moon. They will not be allowed to worship the sun. They will not be allowed to worship anything, a stump or an animal. They will be forced to worship him. So he's got to get rid of this help, this helper. And so John tells us, we could spend a sermon unpacking this, but very quickly he basically says that what the Antichrist is going to do is he's going to rob her. He's going to take all of her assets, her wealth. He's going to disgrace her. Maybe expose her hypocrisies. He's going to devour her and destroy her. More than likely, the straw that breaks the camel's back will be some claim by her to rule. The church will rule the state and he will say, no, I will rule both church and state. And everyone will worship me. Where's God in these wretched days? of blasphemy are things out of hand I'll be closed by reading verse 17 in just a comment or two don't miss this for God put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled listen the return of mankind to Babylon and to the religion of Babel, confusion, is part of the plan of God. In this final showdown, this final conflict between the city of man and the city of God, the kingdom of Babylon and the kingdom of Christ. It's fascinating then to consider that from Genesis to Revelation, the purposes of God are being played out. You can bank on it. You can depend upon it. He is the author of it all. For those of us who believe in him, even our lives now, no matter what the struggle, no matter the suffering, chaos, the conflict, God's purposes for you will be fulfilled perfectly on time. And ultimately we will be part of this final scene as the city of Jerusalem defeats once and for all the city of Babylon and our king takes his rightful place on the throne of David. There's one God in this universe and his victory is secure. Thanks for joining us today here on Wisdom for the Heart, the Bible teaching ministry of Stephen Davey. In addition to equipping you with these daily Bible lessons, we also have a magazine. That magazine features articles written by Stephen that look into specific topics related to the Christian life. The magazine also has a devotional guide you can use every day to remain rooted and grounded in God's Word. We call the magazine Heart to Heart. And we send Heart to Heart magazine to all of our wisdom partners, but we'd be happy to send you the next three issues if you'd like to see it for yourself. 
call us today. Our number is 866-48-BIBLE or 866-482-4253. Thanks for listening and be with us next time for more wisdom for the heart.